On the Virtual Bible Study tonight, we're going to keep going with the most commonly asked Bible questions. Last week we started this discussion. Uh, we, uh, we found on a website called gotquestions.org the uh, 20 most commonly asked Bible questions. That's a fairly uh, well-known website. They get a lot of questions. They have compiled their top 20. And so we thought we'd just run through those top 20 and, and look to see what the Bible says concerning those questions. We got through 10 last week, and we're going to get started with number 11 tonight. You'll want to stay tuned. We're getting started right now. It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, Internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 93- 3-1-381-4567 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And we welcome you into the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, December 27th, 2018. Thank you for joining us on the program tonight. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, joins me. Jake, Jacob, great to be with you tonight. Good to be with you. Kyle's behind the controls tonight. Kyle, thank you. It's good to be here. Glad that you're here. And we got Bobby sitting in the audience here tonight. Glad that he's here. I'm glad that you're on the other end of hopefully the line we, tonight. Hopefully we got some folk, new folks listening, maybe with new computers or tablets or phones or something. Maybe you're using – we have a commercial which we say use your computer for something good, and we hope if you have a new device you'll use it regularly to – Tune into the Virtual Bible Study on Thursday night. Back when we made that uh, commercial, that computer is about the only way you could listen to the program. But yeah. Now you probably more people are listening to something on something other than a computer than are on a computer tonight. Probably, but, uh, probably so. We're glad that you're here, and we hope that you'll stay tuned and that you'll comment at 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com or in the chat window below your video feed. Sign in and chat with our listeners tonight, and uh, we're running out of time to get uh, sort Bible of reading la- calendars sort of out. Sort last call for a, getting a, a, a hard copy or a paper copy of our uh, daily Bible reading calendar for 2019. Uh, we probably won't be able to get it to you before the readings begin. Readings begin on Tuesday of next week, uh, but... We now have, as been promised, we do have it up on our website, on our homepage at collegeview.com. If you if you scroll down, you'll find uh, soon to be removed the 2018 reading calendar because there's only one week left of it. But right below it is the 2019 Bible reading calendar. And so uh, you can request a, a paper copy and we'll get it in the mail to you. You may have to start by looking at the website and getting your reading assignments okay. off the website. You, you can, can do that. that. And they come with a free bumper sticker if you act quick. So we'd, we'd be glad to get that to you. We think it's really a good thing, and, and we hope that you will avail yourself of that opportunity and make it a resolution to read through the Bible in 2019. All right. And if you just want a bumper sticker, those are available as well. Questions at collegeview.com is the email address to use. We look forward to hearing from you. And we're going to just put a real quick tease out about an upcoming event here at College View. In January the 26th and 27th, that's a Saturday and a Sunday, we're going to have a special uh, weekend study series here at College View. Uh, Some of our listeners, I think, will know the name Kevin Clark. Kevin's a real effective speaker. He's an attorney in Birmingham, Alabama, but he's also a very effective gospel preacher. He's going to be here. We're going to put him to work. We're going to get five lessons out of him in less than 24 hours yikes so we're going to make him work hard while he's here but you won't want to miss any of the great lessons that he'll bring all right so be staying tuned for uh, more information on uh, that upcoming event we're looking forward to that all right and, and we look forward to hearing from you if you just have questions about something you've heard on a program or like to suggest a future uh, topic for discussion on the program questions at collegeview.com is the email address to use if, maybe if you'd like to come on and be a guest uh, to talk about something that we disagree with, or maybe you know someone who would be willing to do that, we would encourage that as well. Questions at collegeview.com. All right, so last week we had a, an interesting discussion, uh, some good questions. Kyle, those are the questions last week, the quality of the questions that folks were asking were really good. Um, people really interested in what the Bible has to say on various topics. Yes, which uh, I think this is a good 
it's a general comprehensive list of things that people are concerned about, and it does cover a very broad range of questions. So it's I had an of, email today from David up in Ohio. He said, it looks like everybody should know the answers to those questions. Well, I think if, if for those who have studied their Bibles uh, uh, for some time, these are all answerable questions. But, you know, you think about somebody who doesn't have a lot of background in the Bible, maybe maybe just trying to learn some yeah. Bible fundamentals, they're going to have questions like these. So I think this seems to be to me to be a a fairly reasonable listing of the top kinds of questions that people would ask. Yeah, that's great. So, all right, number 11 on this list is an interesting one and one that gets asked, no doubt, very common. Uh, the question 11 says, what does the Bible say about Christian tithing? Should a Christian tithe? Um, well, first of all, what does the Bible say about tithing? Well, the Bible says a good bit about tithing. Oh, yeah, it does a lot. Uh, and, and in an email from Stephen last week, he, he pointed out that tithing actually predates the law of Moses in the Old Testament times because Abraham tithed uh, well before the the law was given to Moses, and so it was. It the Bible has a lot to say about it, and under the law of Moses, it was it was a mandated thing. There were offerings and tithes and and so forth that they were required to give. Now, I would disagree with Stephen uh, in his email when he sent when he says um, that. Let me see if I can find it here. Uh, he, he says, should a Christian tithe? Absolutely. But our giving should not end there since there are other reasons for giving over and above the tithe. 10%. I, I agree with that. But later in, in his text here, he, he, he states that it has not been that, that the tithe law has not been abolished. Uh, uh, he says in closing, he says, let me state that those within the church of Christ who tell the flock that it's OK not to tithe today will be guilty of telling the flock that it's okay to rob God. And he references Malachi 3, 8 through 10. Uh, I, I don't agree. Stephen's take on it is certainly we agree that it, it's, a, it's a practice that's discussed much in the Old Testament and, in fact, does predate the law of Moses. But we're not going to the Old Testament for our authority today. We've talked about that so many times on the virtual Bible study if it's if it's a, a a law for us to keep today, it will necessarily be repeated in the New Testament, and the law of the tithe is not repeated in the New Testament. And so, uh, so first, what does the Bible say about tithing? It says a lot about it, and it's in the Old Testament. What does the Bible say about Christian tithing? It doesn't say anything about that. It doesn't say anything about Christians being required to give a tithe. But I, I, I like the implication of Stephen's answer. I remember an old preacher used to say, when people say, do we have to tithe today? He said, oh, no, definitely not. You can give a whole lot more than that. And and that's, of course, not the answer that a lot of people are expecting. But I think that's the way. And as Stephen mentioned that in his in his answer, too, I think that, that we should not think that, you know, calculating the bare minimum 10% would be, uh, an appropriate attitude for us to possess. Uh, the, the, go ahead, Jay. Well, I, and Kent in Calhoun, Georgia, touched on that in his response. He says the New Testament does not bind the tithe as a requirement. First Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 teaches us that we are to give as we have been prospered. Second Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 instructs us to give generously and sacrificially. While the tithe is not bound upon Christians as a requirement, it does serve as an excellent baseline to develop sacrificial and generous giving. Uh, so I like that. I like that explanation. Very well. So he said he says it's not, it's not a requirement, but it might you you might use it as a guideline as uh, what has God expected in the past and why would He expect less of us? Less of us today, and uh, certainly it's not unreasonable or beyond the pale to think that well, you would give ten percent. Yeah. Uh, God expected that uh, earlier in time, so why would it, that be unreasonable uh, now, today? Now, let's look to what the, again, uh, our authority is not Old Testament. Our authority is New Testament. And concerning giving in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. I know this is a command. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him. 
that there be no gatherings when they come. So our rule is as prospered. Uh, and certainly we live in a very prosperous place and time. And so our prosperity would, would probably indicate that we ought to give considerably more than 10%. Uh, in first, in Second Corinthians chapter 9, Verse 6, Paul says, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, notice, every man according as he purposeth in his heart. Not every man give 10% of what he made, but every man as he makes a purpose or a decision or commitment in his own heart. That's that's not tithing. That's uh, Tithing was a specified amount. This is as the man purposes. As a man purposes in his heart, so let him give not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. So, uh, again, the second part of that question is, should a Christian tithe? Well, not as a specified law for us. That was Old Testament. It was, it was both in the patriarchal times, Abraham tithe. It was during under the law of Moses for the Israelites. They were commanded to tithe. We have no equivalent command in the New Testament but we're we're expected to give generously, cheerfully, as we purpose or plan, and in relationship to our prosperity. All of those are principles that would probably indicate we give well more than ten percent. Okay, I'd like to touch on uh, certainly uh, uh, we uh, we need to be generous givers, and uh, so if we're looking for a line to draw this line and say, okay, I want to get up to that line, and I don't want to go over that line then perhaps that is an indication our heart's not right in the area of giving, and we're not being truly generous and cheerful in our giving. Something to think about. I do want to go to Stephen's email, uh, because the New Testament does mention a tithe, and he references that in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 4 through 8. You'll notice that in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 4 through 8, Abraham is giving a tithe to Melchizedek. And he goes on uh, here in his uh, email, Stephen says, uh, Abraham uh, tithed to, to him, Melchizedek, and is in fact an example left for us today. He goes on in verse, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4, Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils, and those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people. That is uh, from their brethren, although... These are descended from Abraham, but the the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham, and blessed it, blessed is the one or blessed the one who had the promises, but without dispute the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one received them of whom it is written that he lives on. So he says but, that Abraham is an example to us to tithe, and that's not the context of Hebrews chapter seven. The context of that passage is the greater priesthood of Melchizedek. That's right. And it's not the greater priesthood. It's not, it's not stating a, a perpetual law of tithing. But the fact that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek and Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Not a Levitical priesthood. Not a Levitical priest. He, the text says Levi was, was basically an unborn yet descendant of Abraham. And... In representative form, Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek, which would suggest the greater priesthood of Melchizedek, the type of priesthood of which Jesus is. Uh, but it's but not it's about. It's not holding up Abraham as, oh, he tithed, then <coughs> you need to tithe as well. It's not a perpetual rule of tithing. All right. 877 381 4567. Donna in the chat room asked Would giving to homeless people be considered tithing? Well, we need to correct. We need to make sure we're using correct terms. We're not. We're not instructed to tithe today. We're instructed to give. And so, Donna's question is: If you gave to someone who was in need, would that be considered giving? Well, I, it is. It's it's not giving of the sort that's commanded. I think in First Corinthians sixteen, the laying by and storing the first day. It's but not it is that a type gift. of giving that but is it's, commanded. It's a, it's, it's a it's a benevolent act. The which the kind of which we are expected to do. Yes. Okay. And so, uh, I mean, we 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 have lots of opportunities to do good in the Lord's service, uh, but that's not tithing either. Uh, she says, "Would it be a a considered? No, it's it's not tithing. There's nothing nothing we do in in the Christian age is tithing. 
I mean, that, that was a specific practice in Old Testament times. We lay we, by in store, 1 Corinthians yeah. 16, 1 and 2. And, and, and we, are, we are to be uh, engaged in good works. Yes. <clears throat> and, and that would certainly be a good work, and we ought to do that sort of thing. But it's not tithing. All right. All right. Uh, time for a break. Uh, Arthur, Re- yeah, yeah, Arthur's ahead. in the chat room. He says, when I have read two more chapters in Revelation, I will have read the Bible through 17 times and still learning. He's using that that. Bible reading calendar as far yeah, as I think he's used it. I think he's used it every year we've published it and and followed it through the Bible each time. I like what he he concludes that with. He's still learning, and still certainly learning. every time we go through uh, everything we every time we read, uh, often we'll find something new, and so that's a good uh, good encouragement there. Thank you, Arthur, for that, and a good reminder if you want those Bible reading calendars, send us an email. We get a break, and when we get back, the next question: speaking in tongues is it for today? And what about praying in tongues? Uh, What about that? Is that something we ought to be doing today? We'll get on that uh, when we get back. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study continues right after this. Don't touch that mouse. The Virtual Bible Study will be back right after this. Hi, I'm Lane Crawford, a member of the College View Church of Christ. If you've never visited with the College View Church of Christ, you may be wondering what our worship services are like. One thing we have at every worship service is music. We believe God has commanded that music be a part of our worship. But something you may notice about our worship is that the music we have in our worship is different than the music used by many in the religious world today. The music we worship God with is strictly vocal. We don't believe God has commanded us to worship Him with instrumental music. Therefore, since we want God to approve of the worship we offer Him, we only worship in the way that he has specified. In Colossians 3.16, God instructs, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Instructions like this in which only vocal music is commanded are the only instructions we can find in the New Testament. Since God didn't tell us that he wanted us to worship him with instrumental music, how can we be sure that he wants that kind of worship? We do know that if we worship God like he prescribed with vocal music, that he'll be happy with that kind of worship. We hope you'll make plans to visit with the College of Church of Christ to learn more about what our worship is like. We'd love to have you join us in worship of our Creator this Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Here's some quotes worth pondering. He who forgets the language of gratitude can never be on speaking terms with happiness. To stay out of hot water, keep a cool head. Thoughts lead on to purposes. Purposes go forth in action. Actions form habits. Habits decide character. And character fixes our destiny. The greatest of faults is to be conscious of none. Control your thoughts. They may break into words at any time. The less there is in the pot, the quicker it boils. Watch your temper. Man, wish I'd said that. Use your Internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program. We're back on the program tonight talking about most commonly asked Bible questions. Number 12, what is the gift of speaking in tongues? Is it for today? What about praying in tongues? Well, the first part, we can illustrate what speaking in tongues is was in New Testament times very clearly from Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when the apostles, when the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles it says in Acts 2 verse 3 there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire and it sat upon each of them and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now we know that these were actual literal known languages because it says in verse 6 When this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? How uh, and how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? And so that establishes what the New Testament practice of speaking in tongues was. It was it was God empowering individuals through the Holy Spirit to speak a language that they had not known before, that they hadn't studied it. Yep. Uh, and, and, and they were given that miraculous power to do so. It was one of the signs that, that proved that they were actually speaking the word of God. Okay. Uh, and so those, those miracles were very instrumental in convincing people uh, that the message being preached was a message from God. And speaking in tongues was one of those signs. And but it's it was, a, it's a, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. Just, I'm just stressing that it was, they were known languages. That's, a, that's right. It wasn't gibberish. It was a known language so that if 
I'm a German, and Kyle is speaking in tongues in a German tongue that Kyle has never studied German. I hear I hear Kyle speak. I understand Kyle's speaking my language, and I know what he said. Yeah. But First Corinthians chapter 14 says there may be an instance where, so we're in, in Tennessee and we all speak English. We don't know any other tongues. Maybe Kyle once starts speaking in tongues in a German tongue in an assembly in the first century where everyone spoke English, if that was around then, which it wasn't. Verse 27 of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says, If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two or at the most three that by course, and let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So if Kyle's speaking in a language that nobody in the group knows, there needs to be an interpreter to tell us what Kyle's saying. And an interpreter was interpreting literal languages. Uh, but by the way, that points out that it, the the people who exercised those gifts were in con, still in control of their of their activities. That's a good point. In other words, it wasn't just an overpowering thing where they couldn't even they couldn't stop speaking if they wanted to. Right here, they were told if there's no interpreter, you be still. Yeah. And so even though they had the power to speak in a tongue, if there's no interpreter there to interpret it, they were not. They were not to use that gift. Now, real quickly, uh, there's a the last part of that question is what about praying in tongues? Well, one of the things that they did do in tongue speaking was to pray. Notice in, still in that First Corinthians 14, that's a really important text because it deals with the use of spiritual gifts. And in First Corinthians 14, 14, Paul said, if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. What then? I will pray with the Spirit. I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit. I will sing with the understanding also. Else, when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say, Amen, at thy giving of thanks, seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest? So there was the potential to, to pray in tongues, but again, without an interpreter, it was. It, Paul said there's no advantage to it. And, it. and so again, the rule of interpretation in the assemblies. Uh, was expressed so we uh, in answer to the question we know that in the first century tongue speaking was the ability to speak in what we would call foreign languages that you had not studied but you were able to speak them and the people who who did speak those languages as their native tongue could understand what you said uh there was the potential to to pray in these unknown tongues, but all of that is regulated in 1 Corinthians 14, where it says if there's not anybody available who can interpret those tongues. By the way, interpretation also was a miraculous gift. Some Sometimes people who didn't know the languages themselves would be given the gift of interpretation, but if the interpretation wasn't available, they were not to speak. Okay. All right. So there's your, that's part of the question. So now, but by the way, if our listeners want to compare what was going on in the first century with what's going on in Pentecostal churches today, a quick Google search will show you that these practices are not being followed today. The the commands uh, of First Corinthians 14 are not being followed by people who claim to be speaking what by the Holy Spirit. So how would the Holy Spirit cause these people to do things that are in contrast to what? The Holy Spirit commanded us to do in black and white in First Corinthians 14. Now, the the I think the really critical part of it. Well, it's all an impo- the whole question is important, but it's really an important part of the question is: Is it for today? And the answer to that is no. It's not for today. And a, a key passage is First Corinthians 13. So Paul's talking about a lot of this right here in this in this part of First Corinthians. And in chapter 13, beginning verse 8, he says, "Charity never faileth." But whether they be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether they be tongues, they shall cease. Whether they be knowledge, it shall vanish away. So prophecy, that was a gift of the Spirit. Tongues was a gift of the Spirit. The knowledge here, I think, also was a gift of the Spirit, the inspired knowledge. Uh, We still have knowledge because we study and learn. But those inspired men had knowledge that were just supernaturally implanted in their mind. He says all of that's going to end, but specifically notice that he mentions tongues. Tongues are going to cease, he says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. Then he goes on to explain when. He says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. So they, in other words, this process of revelation was still ongoing and it wasn't finished yet. But when that which is perfect 
the King James says perfect. That word can literally mean complete. And this reads better that way. When that which is complete is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When the completed revelation was made known to mankind, the need for these miraculous gifts, including tongue speaking, would not exist anymore and they would be taken away. We believe that that has, in fact, come to pass. All right. Uh, for further inf- uh, verification of that, notice the imagery here in verse 12. Now, at the time that Paul wrote this, they didn't have the complete picture. It was like they were looking into this glass and getting a fuzzy picture of how God a, saw a, them. A poor quality mirror, yeah. Yeah. And But when the completed revelation to co- had come, they would know even as they were known. They would see themselves clearly. James chapter 1 Verse uh, 23 and uh, following uses that same image of a, of a mirror and seeing yourself as God sees you and tells us that we that mirror is the perfect law of liberty or the revi- revealed word of God. And when we link that up with Rome, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we realize that the scriptures, when completed, would... Uh, bring about the end of uh, the miraculous gifts in the first century. Yeah, really important subject. we got to hurry, Jake. We're almost halfway through the program. We've done two questions. Oh, we got to do ten. Let's grab this next one real quick before our break. Uh, quickly, before uh, we do, um, uh, Kent says, in the New Testament, speaking in tongues was a miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit that was speaking in hu- a human language that was unlearned by the speaker, bestowed as one of the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit that was limited to the miraculous age of the first century, Acts 2. 5 through 21, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. Speaking in tongues was, a, was temporary and came to an end with all other miraculous gifts upon the completion and confirmation of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13. Thank you, Kent, for exactly that. Exactly right, Kent. Kent, you know, he says the same things that we say, but he does it in a much more succinct he, yeah, and he's direct always, manner. He's always, on, he's always right on it. Yeah, thank you, Kent. Real quickly, let's grab another one. Question 13, what does the Bible say about dinosaurs? Are there dinosaurs in the Bible? Oh, boy. Well, first, the word dinosaur is not in the Bible. That's not too surprising. I was doing a little reading about that. The word dinosaur wasn't even coined until 1840. Uh, so it's not too surprising that the word dinosaur is not in the Bible because it was, it's, a, it's a, a relatively new word that just yeah. came into use. Okay. I think the word literally means terrible lizard or something like that. Is that right, Kyle? Doesn't dinosaur mean terrible lizard? So. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's, that's Tyrannosaurus. That's... That's, yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> it's, it's all the same. It's, yeah. All right. Now, but does the Bible mention? Now, first of all, the Scripture says that God created all living things. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 24, God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth after his kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind and cattle after their kind and everything that was creeped upon the earth after his kind, God saw that it was good. And immediately after that, God created the first man, Adam. Right. If, if, if we believe the Genesis account, then God created dinosaurs in the same time frame that he created man. And therefore, we would, we would be led to think that there might be some reference in the Bible to man because man would have lived during the time, the same time that dinosaurs did. Now, that obviously... This completely flies in the face of false claims of science uh, uh, because science says that the dinosaurs became extinct 65 million years ago and man didn't evolve until about 4 million years ago. Uh, But those those, those false evolutionary timetables are completely out of whack and they, and they they don't line up with known science at all. Man and dinosaurs existed together. Okay. And there is, in fact, at least one good reference that describes what likely was a dinosaur. In Job 40, verse 15, Job 40, verse 15, beginning, Behold now behemoth, which I made with thee. He eateth grass as an ox. Lo now, his strength is in his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly. He moveth his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his stones are wrapped together. His bones are strong, uh, as strong pieces of brass. His bones are like bars of iron. Uh, 
so that that probably sounds like uh, verse 19 he is the chief of the ways of god he that made him can make his sword to approach into him that that probably sounds like the description. Uh, those who know dinosaurs, I'm not an expert on dinosaurs at all, but those who are expert on dinosaurs say that that description fits very well to a kind of dinosaur known as a sauropod. Well, that's sauropod. What was, that was what I think. Were you thinking that, Kyle? Sauropod. That was my first thought. But uh, no, again, the word dinosaur is not in the Bible, not surprisingly since it's a relatively new word made up. But the description of a beast that sounds very much like a dinosaur is there in the book of Job. The book of Job is actually a very ancient book. It's one of, if not the oldest books in the Bible. Uh, and so it's a, it's a really ancient book. An early man had experience uh, with dinosaurs. That's what I think we know from the Bible, but the word's not in the Bible. Uh, Kent says the term dinosaur is not explicitly stated in the Bible. However, Job 40, 15 through that's 24 indicates text. a description of such a creature. Yeah, that's that text I was just reading. All right. All right. Very good. All right. Uh, all right. Let's get a break. Get this week's bullet point, And when we get back, we'll get your thoughts. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. You won't want to miss what we talk about next. The discussion continues right after these important messages. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. The beginning of a new year provides an excellent opportunity for us to pause, ponder, plan, and prepare for the future. We hope that the new year will especially cause us all to think about our spiritual service to God and how we can improve in the fulfillment of our duties to Him. Let us challenge you in these specific areas. 1. Spend more time in prayer. Don't allow the day to begin or end without spending time in prayer to God. Throughout the day, stop and petition Him for help and strength. And by all means, don't just wait for a crisis to develop before you think to pray. Pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17. Second, study your Bible more consistently. Use one of the available daily Bible reading schedules or come up with your own plan to read on a regular basis. Don't just rush through a few verses. Instead, really study the text to learn its meaning. Before you end a reading session, think about how you can make application of what you've read in real and practical ways. Give attendance to reading, 1 Timothy 4, verse 13. Attend every Bible study and worship this new year. This, of course, is your duty, but it's also a privilege. Be present. Make this a high priority. Why would you not want to be present to worship God and study His Word? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, Hebrews 10, verse 25. Fourth, teach the lost. We all have friends, neighbors, co-workers, and family members who are lost in sin. They need us to share the gospel with them. Make a firm commitment to reach at least one of them with the good news this year. If each Christian would bring just one person to the Lord each year, we could soon convert the whole world. Let's do it. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Matthew 28, verse 19. Fifth, live a pure, godly life. Nothing else matters if we're not living a faithful life for the Lord. Think about this and let it be manifested in how you talk, where you go, who you associate with, how you dress, and so forth. Others are looking at you and evaluating Christianity on the basis of what they see of it in you. Ye are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Glorify your Father which is in heaven. Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. In a very real sense, having a happy new year depends on how well you fulfill your spiritual duties to God. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Hello, I'm Nick Law from Jennings, Florida. I love to listen to the virtual Bible study and hear God's Word taught every Thursday night. A streaming Bible study. Why didn't I think of that? Now back to the guys. Back on the program tonight. Remind you, this program is brought to you by the College of Church of Christ. Find out more about us by visiting our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. Check that website out. Hopefully soon you're going to find a way to stream our services and see recordings of our services get an idea about what we believe, what we, how we practice our worship. We haven't, we're not doing that yet. Not but yet, we but it's, it's, we're on the verge, on the cusp of that uh, technology. So uh, don't go anywhere. Stay tuned for that. Uh, we want to hear from you tonight as we talk about the 10 most common or the 20 most commonly Nine, yeah, 20 most commonly asked Bible questions. We're looking at the latter 10 in the last week, and you can catch it in our podcast if you missed it, the first 10 that we talked about. We're on to number 14 now. Well, this is a really broad question, but a really a good question, a necessary question. What is the importance of Christian baptism? What's the, what's the importance of baptism? Well, I, I mean, there's so many verses we could go to in the New Testament to talk about baptism, but... First Peter 3.21 says, Baptism doth also now save us. That's pretty important. Uh, that, I would say that's important. Mm-hmm. Acts 2.38 says it's for the remission of sins. Repent yep. and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Uh, Acts 22.16 
says it washes away sin. Now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So, I mean, those three verses, that it, it's, it saves us. It's for the remission of sins. It washes away our sins. I mean, we can multiply the verses, but all that makes it sound pretty important. That's right. Our listeners have some more to add to it. New Testament baptism is a condition of salvation, says Kent. He says, such as, as for the remission of past alien sins, Acts 2.38. Dwight in Ames, Iowa says, Acts uh, 2 teaches us that baptism is for the remission of sins. How is it that we can be saved without having our sins forgiven? Through baptism, that's what the Bible teaches us. If we can be saved without baptism, what was the purpose of Jesus dying on the cross? The truth of the matter is this. Jesus said in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Romans chapter 6 says, through and only through baptism do we put on Christ and come into contact, spiritually speaking, with the blood of Christ. It says that our new life begins after our burial, that is baptism, verse 4. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Galatians chapter 3 verse 27 says that those who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Thank you for those Good uh, points tonight, Dwight. Okay. A lot more can be said about that. If if you're listening and you have more questions about baptism, check our archives because we've got a number of programs about baptism in our archives. Or contact us via email. We'd love to talk with you more about it. Yeah, exactly right. right. Okay. uh, Number 15. 15. What does the Bible say about drinking alcohol? Is it a sin for a Christian to drink alcohol? Uh that's a really important question. That's also a question that we've dealt with uh, at length on the virtual Bible study, but it is so important, and it's interesting that it's a question that's on people's minds. Yes. Uh, one of the very basic things that a study of that requires is to understand that in the Bible, we read so often about the word wine. To us, the modern-day usage of the word wine means fermented right. grape juice. It means something you could get drunk on. It has alcoholic content because it's been fermented. In the Bible, it's used that way. Uh, And you could get drunk from some wines in the Bible. But in the Bible, the word wine is also used to describe what we would call grape juice, unfermented juice of the grape. Uh, and and they, they didn't have a word to distinguish that. And so you have to let the context of the usage determine which is which. And that, that throws a lot of people off because every time they read wine, they automatically assume that it's an intoxicating drink. And that's and all, all uh, uh, Bible scholars, language scholars will acknowledge that you have to just let the context bear out because it can be a reference to simply grape juice. Yeah, so in in our uh, language today, wine is means alcoholic, an alcoholic beverage. Yeah. In the New Testament, it didn't necessarily mean that. It's similar to our use of the word cider today. Cider can be can refer to an alcoholic beverage or an unfermented non-alcoholic beverage. So we have the same kind of language today when we would use uh, a word like cider, they would use that same type of approach with the word wine. Yeah, for instance, in Isaiah 65, verse 8, thus saith the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, destroy it not, for a blessing is in it, so I will do for my servant's sake that I may not destroy them all. Look, wine, and the grapes are still hanging in the cluster on the vine, but the juice in them is called wine. So, uh that's a that's the thing that's necessary in in a discussion understand for instance when jesus turned water to wine in john chapter 2 at the wedding feast in cana of galilee a lot of people because it says he turned water into wine they automatically assume that he made alcoholic beverage that is not uh, that is not the case that's not first of all that's not proven simply because the word wine is used and secondly we go on and study that text as we have so often uh, clearly, Jesus just made grape juice there. All right. Uh, 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. Now to the question. We've, we've discussed what the word means. Does the Bible? What does the Bible say about drinking alcohol? Is it okay for a Christian to drink alcohol? Is it a sin for a Christian to drink alcohol? Well, uh, again, if you want a really deeper study of this subject, go to our archives. 
But our conclusion is clearly that a Christian is not to drink intoxicating drink uh, for one reason, because Christians are commanded to maintain sobriety. First Peter 5, verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. Uh, uh, the, the word sober there suggests free from intoxicating influence. And we're commanded to be free of intoxicating influence. All right, and we're to do that in the face of this roaring lion that's seeking about to, to, to who we can devour. Uh, so we obviously want to have the full use of our faculties as we war against him. And, and then another passage that, uh, that we have referenced that talks about several different degrees of drinking is First Peter 4, verse, we won't take time to read it, but First Peter 4, verses 1 through 3. Uh, 1 through 4, 1 Peter 4, 1 through 4, uh, in verse 3 specifically, it talks about several levels of drinking, and they're all condemned, excess of wine, revelings and banquetings, varying degrees of higher and lesser drinking, and it's all condemned. So Kent in, in Georgia says there's no authority for the Christian to drink alcohol as a beverage. He references that passage, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. The only acceptable usage of such is as medicine in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23. Good point there from Kent. And you did not mention 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23. But there is a command there for Timothy to use uh, a little wine for his stomach's sake. So obviously medicinal purposes are approved. But if you think about that, the fact that Timothy had to be told to do so for a medicinal benefit it clearly leaves the implication that his normal practice was not to drink any at all. He wasn't having a glass with his dinner. Right. Or else that would, his stomach would have been just fine already. Dwight in Iowa says, first, if a person wants to justify what they're doing, they can do so by twisting the words of God to their own destruction. When we study what God says about drinking alcohol, we can see it took place in the scriptures, but that did not mean God approved of it. Adultery and fornication and homosexual, homosexuality also are in the scriptures and God condemns all of them. Yet people find a way to make it all good and fine. Sober in the Greek is nepho. The word nepho means abstain from wine. First Peter 1.13 says to prepare your minds and keep sober. Keep away from alcohol. In the Old Testament, Proverbs 20 verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler. And those in intoxicated by it are not wise. Uh, Proverbs 23, verses 29 through 35, teaches about the effects of alcohol. Uh, so, uh, again, Dwight agrees that in answer to this question, yes, the Bible talks about drinking alcohol and condemns it, and it would be a sin for a Christian to drink alcohol. He goes on and says, even the TV promotes drinking for our health. You know, some people like to cite some studies that say, oh, if you drink uh, alcohol, it's good for your health. Drink a glass of wine, it's good for your health. It, yeah, uh, those and studies, next week you're going to get a study that says that's the right. opposite. That's right. And a recent study has come out and said there's no safe or healthy amount of alcohol uh, consumption, uh, that, this, that, that the only safe uh, or healthy option is to not drink any at all. But the fact of the matter is if we're going to base our standing with God on some type of fallible medical study, uh, then certainly we're on shaky ground. We need to base our our practices on what the infallible word of God says, and, uh, and certainly we see instructions there for us to be sober, to be free from the influence of intoxicants. Real quick, we gotta, we got to hurry here. I'm going to grab the next one before our final break. 16, what does the Bible say about gambling? Is gambling a sin? The Bible doesn't use the word gambling. And so you could say the Bible doesn't say anything about it because the word's not there. But the, there's principles in the Bible that, that are violated by the practice of gambling. It's addictive. It, it is a form of covetousness, and covetousness is widely condemned in the, the Scriptures. It violates the principles of love and, and, and the gold, so-called golden rule. Because if, if we gamble and I win, you lose. And so uh, it's not a loving thing to do. It's bad stewardship. Gamblers lose their money primarily, don't uh, more lose than win. Uh, it violates what the Bible authorizes as legitimate transfer of funds, uh, gifts, work, inheritance, uh, trade, barter, 
but never gambling. And, of course, gambling breeds other problems. That's what we would say about gambling. We have, again, uh, art, uh, programs in our archives. Back a few years ago, we were fighting very hard here in Tennessee to try and prevent the passage of a state lottery. We failed in that, but we talked at the time we talked quite a bit about gambling. And Canton, Georgia, says gambling violates the biblical principles of greed, honesty, work, and proper concern for one's fellow man. Thank you for those comments, Ken. We're going to break, and when we get back, we're going to the top of the hour. What does the Bible say about the Trinity? We'll talk about that when we get back. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study continues right after this. Did you hear what they just said? Call in during this break and let everyone know what you think. The Virtual Bible Study continues after this announcement. Hi. My name is Mike Johnson. I'm a member here at the College of You Church of Christ. Have you ever heard someone say that the members of the Church of Christ are too legalistic? Generally, people say this when we say that we must be careful to follow all the commands that God has given us. When we say, God says we must do this, or God doesn't command us to do that, people respond with, the members of the Church of Christ are too legalistic. Well, while it may be impossible to know exactly what people mean when they make this accusation, if they are accusing us of being legalistic because we say that we should follow all the instructions that God has given us, then that accusation is correct. But let me ask you this. Which of the commands that God has given us should we ignore? Can we pick and choose which commands we follow, or must we follow them all? Jesus said we have to follow all the commands of God when he said in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? We want to call Jesus our Lord, so we try to follow all the commandments that he has given us us. We don't in any way think that following God's commands earns our salvation, but we do think it is necessary to be pleasing to him. Here at the College of You Church of Christ, we're trying to follow every command that God has given us. If, as a result, some people call us legalistic, then so be it. We think it's what God calls being righteous. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. It is estimated that 40% of Americans make New Year's resolutions. In comparison, only about a third of Americans watch the Super Bowl. But for all the good intentions, only a tiny fraction keep their resolutions. The University of Scranton research showed that just 8% of people achieve their New Year's goals. That information is via Forbes magazine. The Word of God says in Matthew 6, verse 33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Quit checking your email. The commercials are over and the virtual Bible study is ready to roll. Take it away, guys. We're back on the program tonight. Uh, Going to the top of the hour. What does the Bible teach about the Trinity? Number 17. Well, uh, again, here's a word that's not in our Bibles. The word Trinity is not in our Bibles. The Bible uses the word Godhead. Um, And and so we, we would probably prefer that designation. For instance, Acts 17, verse 29 refers to the Godhead. But we believe there are there are three persons. That's the idea of Trinity. Three beings comprise the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, this is a rather deep study in itself, but Genesis 1, verse 1, uh, or excuse me, Galatians 1, verse 1, talks about God the Father. John chapter 1, verse 1, speaks about the Word who was with God in the beginning and verse 14 of John 1 makes it clear he's talking about Jesus, the Son. Mm-hmm. And then in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, the Holy Ghost is said to be God. So there are, there are three beings in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. They are not just different manifestations of one being. They are three distinct beings. And there's good ways to argue that. Uh, at Jesus' baptism in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist. The Spirit descends as a dove. The Father speaks from heaven. All three beings are manifested there. But notice uh, uh, the argument of, that Jesus made John 8, beginning verse 13. Um, Jesus said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true, for I am not alone, but I, and the fa- but I and the Father that sent me. It is written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. If, the, if, that's just, if the Father and the Son are just different manifestations of the same being, Jesus was composing there a very deceptive argument. Yeah. 
But if they are two separate beings, then it makes sense, and that's what we believe is the case. Okay. Kent says the term Trinity is not found in the Bible. However, the concept is certainly taught. God is one divine essence comprised in three specific beings or persons known as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He references Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. Right. So, God so loved John three sixteen. No, Matthew three sixteen. Oh, Matthew. I'm sorry. Matthew three sixteen and seventeen. Uh, it says, uh, and Jesus, when he was baptized, this is the baptism of Jesus. Okay. Uh, the, the spirit of dove descending like a, the spirit of God descending like a dove, and a voice from heaven saying, "This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased." He references Matthew twenty eight uh, verses uh, eighteen through twenty, where all three are mentioned again there, and Jesus said. Uh, in verse 19, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. All right. Thank you, Kent. For Thanks, those. Kent. Kent's our most faithful correspondent on these questions. We always appreciate the good answers he sends in. The next question, a little bit delicate, but it's an important one. What does the Bible say about sex before marriage? Well, it condemns it. The, the Bible word for any Illicit or unauthorized sexual activity is fornication. Mm -hmm. So uh, God uh, uh, made marriage, and in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, the Hebrew writer says, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. So uh, God instituted marriage. Uh, to fulfill the sexual needs of man uh, and any any sexual activity outside of marriage is condemned with that broad term fornication uh, in first corinthians seven verse two nevertheless to avoid fornication let every man have his own wife let every woman have her own husband so uh, if, uh just plainly answered, it condemns it as sin, sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage in, in, in any form is sinful. Kent says such was classified as fornication, Hebrews 13, verse 4, and 1 Corinthians 7, oh, 1, 2. Good, good verse. Are you, are you cheating off of... Uh, I did not see that, but he okay. came up with the same I verse. You I might be looking <laughs> off of his, uh, his sheet here. Yeah, I'm using, using Kent's crib sheet there. All right. All right. Uh, Number 19. Number 19. Where was Jesus for three days between his death and resurrection? Good question. A lot of confusion on this subject. All right. We know, we know where he said he was going. Mm, we do. In Luke chapter 23, verse 43, remember that to the thief on the cross, Jesus said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. So when Jesus died, he went to paradise. Now, what we also know, because Peter spoke about this in his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse, in verse 31, 27. well, he begins a prophecy of David, verse, uh, verse 27, but, but in verse 31, seeing this before he spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. That's King James' translation, and it's a bad one. The word there is Hades. So he references a prophecy made by King David, and he says, he, David, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, Neither did his flesh see corruption. So Jesus went to Hades. Uh, specifically, he went to the part of Hades that uh, he identified as a place of paradise. Last week, we talked about this because we had this very question. It was the last one we dealt with last week. What happens after death? And we referenced the, the account of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. Two men died. They went to Hades. There's two parts of Hades. There's two places in Hades. One is a place of comfort, paradise. It's called Abraham's bosom in Luke chapter 16. And Lazarus went there. The rich man went to a place of torment where he was, where he was being punished in flames. Uh, so Hades is the, is the broad realm of departed spirits. When, when your spirit departs the body, 
That's when you die. When you die, your spirit departs your body. Your body is left here on earth to decay, go back to the basic elements. Your spirit goes to Hades, and there awaits the final resurrection. Jesus said in John 5, verses 28 and 29, Marvel not at this, they are cometh in that all in the which all that are in the grave shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, they that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. So Hades is the realm of departed spirits. That's where Jesus went. That's where all dead people go. You may be in a good place of comfort, paradise, or you may be in a place of torture, but you'll be in Hades when you die until the final resurrection. All right. That's uh, along the lines of what Kent said. Christ was in the intermediate state of paradise. He references that account with the thief on the cross in Luke 23, 39 through 43, where Christ said he was going to be in paradise that day. Yeah. And Acts chapter 2 tells us that it, he was in that portion of Hades uh, by the prophecy that uh, David had made yeah. of, of Jesus. Yeah. Okay. Uh, final question, 20. So, again, these, by the way, if you want to look these up, these are on the website, gotquestions.org. They get a lot of questions, and in concerning Bible questions, they have compiled them into the ones that they get most often. And so we've tried to deal with the top 20. And number 20 is, what does the Bible say about divorce and remarriage? We've just concluded. Whoa. Hey, you got four minutes. No problem. <laughs> Answer we, that. We, we've just concluded a, a two-week study of that, uh, which is not the only study we've ever done on the virtual Bible study. But, again, I encourage folks, if you – that's a really important question. A lot of people have questions about divorce and remarriage. Uh, look to the archives. You can get a little more detail. But if you're going to – if I was going to pick one verse and, and use it as a, sort of a thumbnail sketch of – the New Testament teaching on divorce and remarriage. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 9, whosoever shall put away or divorce, same term, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication. In other words, the only way I could put away my wife if she's been sexually unfaithful. Unfaithful, to me, right. And shall marry another. So if I put her away and marry another, I commit adultery. And whoever marries her, which is put away or divorced, does commit adultery. All right. It's going to be what Kent has to say as well. He says the only acceptable and scriptural reason for divorce and remarriage is when a marriage partner becomes guilty of fornication. Then and only then does the innocent partner have the right to obtain a divorce upon such a cause and enter into another marriage. When one remarries, they must marry another individual who is scripturally qualified, one who has never been previously married, one whose former mate has died, or one who has put a former mate away because of fornication. Now, he backs his answer up here with Scripture, and these are important. Matthew 5, 32, Matthew 19, verse 9, and Matthew 7, verses, I mean, so Romans 7, verses 1 through 3. Thank you, Kent, for those uh, answers tonight. Let's see. Uh, uh, oh, by the way, in the chat room, Jeff confirmed dinosaur does mean terrible lizard. Thank you, Jeff. Tyrannosaur, uh, Kyle, you mentioned that it means tyrant lizard. Tyrant lizard. So it's still a reference to lizard, but a tyrant lizard. But those are new words. Those are not Bible words. Okay. Uh, and then in the uh, YouTube chat window, uh, Anthony is in there. If I can get this thing to pop up. Come on, open up there for me. There it goes. Uh, sober is Greek for abstain from wine or abstain from intoxicants. Thank there's, you, there's actually two words translated with the English word sober. One of them is to be free of intoxicants. There's another word that our English translates as sober, which means be self-disciplined. Yeah. Uh, but there's one that literally means, uh, one of the uses of sober means to be free that of The Greek word nepho, yes. Okay. Uh, he says that's the Greek word nepho. Uh, he says that's not nece necessarily alcoholic wine that, uh, that Timothy was told to drink. Doctors have proven that grape juice alone is beneficial. The only thing that alcohol does is put one asleep. Mm. So he's... I, I I think that may be a fair argument. You can't necessarily prove from First Timothy five twenty three that when he said take a little wine for thy stomach sake that he was necessarily saying take alcoholic wine. He may have just been abstaining from grape All, juice for altogether. Yeah, for the appearance maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. one can't tell that you're drinking alcoholic or non-alcoholic uh, beverage there by the yeah. look of it. So yeah. maybe he's just okay. Good point, Anthony. Thank you, Anthony. All right. Any other comments there? I think that's it. All right. We're just out of time. Kyle, how about you? Any comments on these questions tonight? No. Which uh, we, You talked about alcohol and Timothy's use of it for medicine. I think as a Christian, there are many more uh, options for medicine in today's world than alcohol. So I would just 
that's not a valid excuse, I don't think, anymore. So. Yeah. Oh, okay, right. A, <laughs> right. Okay. Not, not use it as an excuse. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, okay. All right. Thank you for being here, Kyle. That's good. All right. Dad, final thoughts from you. That's, uh, no. Uh, I think those are all great questions. And, and, again, just encourage people, if you need more information, contact us. If you need more information, do a little uh, digging around on our archive page, and you'll find some more information. A and, lot of those questions. And you know what? If you have a question, it doesn't have to be a, a, a very commonly asked question. We take we're open to any question on the program, so you can have a totally unique. And we'd love question. to talk to your preacher if you disagree with something you've heard, and you don't feel comfortable speaking to us on the virtual Bible study. Get your preacher to talk to us. All right. Questions at collegeu.com is the email address to use. Appreciate you for being here tonight, Dad. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Jacob. I hope you benefited from our study and discussion of God's Word. Hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.